You're listening to a sermon originally recorded by Schweitzer United Methodist Church in Springfield, Missouri. Check us out online at sumc.co. And if this sermon blessed you, be sure to share it with someone else. Thank you so much for listening. Now, on to the message. One hundred years had passed since Jonah went to Nineveh to proclaim its destruction. Assyria sat smugly on her throne, having recently conquered Israel, because Israel had disobeyed God's commandments. Assyria then invaded Judah and tried to conquer it. The Assyrian general taunted Hezekiah, the king of Judah, by boasting of Assyria's power and great deeds. But God spared Judah because Hezekiah was a good and righteous king, and Assyria was run out of the country. Yet God wasn't done with Assyria just yet. God had a message for Nineveh, Assyria's capital, and it was delivered through his servant, Nahum. Good morning. It's good to be with you. Uh, did you like that storm last night? Yeah, that was uh, quite the event, wasn't it? Uh, today we're going to be talking about Nahum, and Nahum's one of the prophets, one of the minor prophets, that uh, has got a really short book. We'll find, I mean, you'll find his letter between the books of Micah and, and Habakkuk in, in the Old Testament. As we were talking about, as we were, the preachers, we were sitting around a table talking about these texts and these stories and these books, there was a picture that came into my mind that I've not been able to get out of my mind for, well, ever since, ever since we began having this conversation. I don't know if you think in pictures or not, but, but that happens to me quite a bit. I mean, there's pictures that come into my mind, and so I just want to share this picture with you. I don't know if you've ever seen this guy before. <laughs> um, this picture actually was taken about probably 10 or uh, 10 or 11 years ago now. Uh, it's a picture. The little boy's name is Sammy. He's 11 months. And it is a picture that I've probably seen once or twice in my life. But once you see it, it's the kind of thing that you just can't quite forget it, right? And uh, interesting, this, this picture of Sammy made its rounds on the Internet with, a, I guess, one of the first memes. That's the little saying that goes around it, you know, was, I hate sandcastles. Now, I don't know if Sammy hates sandcastles or not. But if, if you have time at, at your house today, you can go and you can Google it and get a good high-definition picture of it because you'll see that Sammy's got a clump of sand in his hand and on his lips there's grains of sand. So I don't know, maybe he's eating sandcastles. I'm not sure what he's doing. But as I looked at this picture, I thought there's so much about it that is descriptive of, of the minor prophets just in general, in, in whole. Like Sammy's picture, this this image, uh, makes a mark in your mind. Uh, it's, a, it's a cute picture. It's something that you, you know, once you've seen it, you can't not see it. The, the minor prophets, when they come on the scene, they typically have something, one thing that they want to convey. Pastor Bob was, was true last week when he said that the minor 
prophets, you know, one of the things they give to us is they give us the capacity to read a book of Scripture and then tell other people that we've read an entire book of Scripture in one day. I mean, it's not hard to do. But because most of what they're trying to do is to convey one point. In, in that regard, uh, they're almost like a minor league ball player who gets called up and either pinch hits or pitches great for one game. Or they're like a one-hit wonder. They make a splash, and then, that, and then they recede from the, the scene. But their splash is important. Sammy, one of the things I love about that picture, I don't know if you want to put it back up there or not, is that there's something um, serious about him. I mean, this whatever is going on in his mind, there is something serious. And that's true of the minor prophets as well. They've got something that they want to convey in their point. Whatever it is, there's something that they want to convey that's serious, that needs to be listened to, that needs to be attended to. Oftentimes, it's about God, and, and then out of God's character, out of God's nature, it's a conveyance back to us about someplace where we're at, something we need to attend to ourselves. And so today, we're going to turn to the book of Nahum, and we're going to see what Nahum has to say. Now, interesting about Nahum, a couple interesting things about Nahum, is that Nahum is a, is a prophet who gives us very little information about himself. He goes to the same city as Jonah, and if you've ever read Jonah, if, you've, if you were here when we had a study that, you know, had a sermon series that went through Jonah, you know that Jonah had great consternation about, about going to Nineveh. And he had this incredible conversation with God, and it was really an, a, kind of a conversation between uh, Jonah and God that we heard as he went to the city of Nineveh. Nahum comes along about 100 years later, and he tells us nothing really about himself. The, the only thing that we know about Nahum is that he's from the town of Elkish, which I guess is kind of like the town of Elkhart. I don't, I don't know. Um, every when I think about saying that, I, I think, how do you say that? He's from the town of Elkish, and nobody knows where the town is at. They don't know if it's in the country of Judah, where we think he's from, or if it's a suburb of Nineveh. We really don't know where he's from. And in, in some way, we hardly know the time frame in which he speaks. There is an indication that he speaks at least sometime after 670 B.C., and most people think that he may speak, or at least he may compose this letter, somewhere around the time when Nineveh finally falls to the Babylonians, somewhere around 609 B.C. But he tells us little about himself. In fact, he comes to the forefront, and he wants to speak on behalf of God and really just be the mouthpiece, the voice that lets God speak into the world and into the powers that are in that day. And so in beginning in verse 2 of chapter 1 of Nahum, he begins to tell us what God is thinking and who God is like. So if you've got a, if your Bibles, if you've got your Bibles, if you want to turn there, if you want to watch the screen, we'll read beginning in verse 2 of chapter 1. The Lord is a jealous God, filled with vengeance and rage. He takes revenge on all who oppose him, and he continues to rage against his enemies. The Lord is slow to get angry, but his power is great, and he never lets the guilty go unpunished. 
He displays his power in the whirlwind and in the storm. The billowing clouds are the dust beneath his feet. At his command, the oceans dry up and the rivers disappear. The lush pastures of Bashan and Carmel fade and the green forests of Lebanon wither. In his presence, the mountains quake and the hills melt away. The earth trembles and its people are destroyed. Who can stand before his fierce anger? Who can survive his burning fury? His rage blazes forth like fire and the mountains crumble to dust in his presence. The Lord is good, a strong refuge when trouble comes. He is close to those who trust in him, but he will sweep away his enemies in an overwhelming flood. He will pursue his foes into the darkness of night. I couldn't help uh, think about the storm last night as I was reading through that text again how God describes himself as one who has the capacity to thunder and he rides on top of the clouds that are so dangerous. Nahum's picture of God is one that we don't necessarily hear a lot of. In fact, many times we want to in some ways say that that's a picture that we see primarily in the Old Testament. Because the picture that we get of God here is somebody who's who's got a sense of indignation and rage and anger. But we have to understand why God is in that place. And you have to read the fullness of the text to get it. What we really see on the one hand, not only is that God has all of these capacities, but that God is the God of the universe, the God who sees what's taking place, and the God who has incredible power incredible power, the one who can put the world into, into motion and can give life is the one who has the capacity to, to control the storms and set the storms in motion if, if he so chooses. This picture of God that Nahum presents is a picture that is set in many ways in contrast to the understanding of, of the people who live in Nineveh and of the, of the land of the Assyrians. You see, they view themselves as people who are very powerful, people who are very mighty, as people who control the destiny of what's taking place in the world itself. And so the picture of God is, is buttressing, and it's coming up against the picture of how the Assyrians view themselves. If you turn over into chapter 2 and then go on and read chapter 3, you'll hear a number of different elements, a number of different things will come up in which the Assyrians say, here is where we're strong and here is where we're mighty. They talk about how they have great wealth. The Assyrians have, have come to power in, in the 700s and 600s B.C. and they've accumulated through through not only their business enterprises, but through their plundering, through their armies engaging in the world, they've accumulated vast amounts of wealth. They've also got incredible walls around their city. Their city is a walled fortress. And in fact, until 609 B.C., anybody who's ever tried to broach their walls has been repelled almost instantly. Their walls are an incredible fortress. They have great natural defenses. 
and they've got a river. There's a river that, that comes, in fact, right through the city, a spring water. And so they've, they've thought to themselves, if we're ever attacked, we will be fine. We can, we've got a great wall. We've got a great source of water. And, in fact, no one can take the water from us. And if you want to be, if you want to be a power, you've got to have a source of water because water is essential to life. They have a mighty and a victorious army. Their army goes undefeated for decades upon decades. And then they are people with a significant amount of intellect. Nahum doesn't mention this, but we know this through through archaeological finds, that in Nineveh they had 22,000 slate pieces of of writings that that composed their library. One of the largest uh, uh, holdings of documents in the world at that time. They were people who looked at their world, who looked at their city, who looked in the place where they lived, and they said, this is power. Who can conquer us? Who can command us? Who can control us? Nahum, this little voice from this very nondescript town, <laughs> comes on the scene. And he says to Nineveh, you... You trust in all the things that you see and all the things that you think you've got. But you're not the one who has power, real power. You're not the one who controls the clouds or controls the storms. You're really not the one. You've got this river, but you don't control the river of life. God controls the river of life. And so Nahum continues. He says to Nineveh, you've got all of that, and you can chalk all that up, and you mark all that up, and you've used your power, Nineveh. Just like Jonah will tell us, and he begins to show us that Nineveh has used its power in a bloodthirsty way. Evidently, after the repentance of Jonah, Nineveh, comes back and they pick up that way they walk in that way and so in uh, I think it's in chapter 3 Nahum says to us that as you walked through the city of Nineveh there were countless casualties all around heaps of bodies so many that the people stumble over them Nineveh is a mistress of deadly charms That's the kind of city that the Lord of the universe sends a message to. In fact, it's not just this message in this depiction, but twice, twice the Lord says to the Ninevites, Nineveh, I am your enemy. Imagine that for a moment. God saying to a city, to a country, to a nation, to to an organization, There is something in you that I find repugnant, completely repugnant. And I am your enemy. What is it that God has against Nineveh? Well, I think it simply comes down to a a matter of life and death. God is a God who creates life, who longs to sustain life, who longs to give life, who longs to see life as something that, that everyone gets to be a part of. The people who lived in Nineveh and the Assyrians, 
They saw other people as somebody to take advantage of, somebody to step on, somebody that they could put into their machine and make their machine work. And when the person broke down, the person was just thrown out. They became that heapless body in the street. The Lord looks at this situation. He says, it cannot go on. It cannot stand. Because he says some other things about himself. He says, I'm a refuge. I'm a strong refuge to people who who need it. The Lord has this passion for life. A couple of years ago, I was attending a seminar, and I heard a guy by the name of Bob Goff speak. Bob Goff is a, well, he's, he's become well-known, relatively well-known. He's the guy in the center there because he wrote a book called Love Does. But before he wrote that book, and, and even now, Bob Goff is a lawyer who lives in Southern California. And somehow, through some connection, he began to get connected with, this, with the country of Uganda, and he began to hear about war crimes that have taken place over decades in the country of Uganda. And he really became passionate about what was happening there. Bob Goff tells a story about one of his most meaningful uh, times of, of prosecuting somebody, bringing a case against somebody else. He said as he discovered what had been happening in Uganda for decades, he discovered that there were people, warlords, who had come to villages, and this happens still to this day across Africa, and Bob Goff is still engaged in this, in this practice, but warlords across Africa will come to villages and they'll capture little kids, they'll take them away from their parents, and they'll turn them in to soldiers, child soldiers, and put them on the field of battle. As Bob Goff thought about that, as that stirred in his own heart and his own mind, there's this sense of righteous anger, the sense of righteous indignation, the sense that this is simply not right. Two can argue with that. And so he talks about taking on one of those warlords. He calls him one of the most evil men that he's ever seen, that he's ever encountered, that he's ever faced. And putting him through a tribunal. You see, those are the kind of kids that Bob Goff sees that warlords like to pick up and to put into action. Kids that, when warlords are done with them, they can just dispose of them. It's not just warlords, though, that do that. There's all kinds of places even in our own midst, organizations, big and small, that, that don't really value people as people. They value people as part of a machine, as part of, of an organization. They value people as part of the instrument. When people break down, those folks get set to the side. Large organizations and small ones do it. And the Lord, through the prophet Nahum, would want to raise his voice today. And he'd want to speak to every place and to every people where there's power. My friends, he would want to say something to us and ask us the question. 
How are you doing? And taking the power that you have and putting it into play. Do you take the power that that you've acquired and accumulated and do you use it to bless others? Or do you use the power that is in your hands and within your own determination and do you use others? God is a God who wants to see life thrive. Most of the book of Nahum, about 90% of it, is written to the Ninevites and it's a bit of a downer quite frankly. There is not a whole lot of light in it. You come to the end of it, and there is not this grand rallying cry to Nineveh like there was in Jonah, like, hey, if you repent, God will relent. No. Nahum just says, God is fed up. He's drawn the line. Your time is ending. And in 609 B.C., the time of the Ninevites ended. Except their spirit lives on. Our spirit lives on. And it moves around from time to time and people to people. And so we have to wonder, is the spirit of Nineveh, where is it today? And is it within us? At the same time, about 10% of the book of Nineveh, or of Nahum, has some really good news. You heard it in verse 7 that we read earlier where the Lord says, I'm a a refuge to all those who look for a refuge, a place, a stronghold. I am a refuge in that place. The Lord also says some other things, like he says, to those of you who are in bondage, know this. To my people, I will break the yoke of bondage from your neck. Um, I long to to free you, to, to give you freedom along the way. And then he says something like this. Just a little bit later on, he says, a messenger is coming over the mountains with good news. He's bringing a message of peace. Um, Here, and we see that that Nahum is almost giving us a picture of Christ, Christ that is to come. Somebody who will, well, he'll, he'll take the mountains and he'll take them down so that we can walk on level ground. And he'll take the valleys and he'll fill them in so that we can walk on level ground. Nahum almost imagines Jesus coming. He he sees him off in the distance. As somebody who comes, as somebody who can indeed rescue us, there's somebody who can set our hearts free. Nahum, he, he speaks this freedom to people who are in bondage. And it's a message that doesn't come simply to those who follow God who are in that place, but it's a message, in fact, that can even fall on the ears of those who live in Nineveh if they're people who are seeking a place of refuge. I showed you that picture of Bob Goff previously. Bob Goff says one of the happiest days in his life was when he could take that warlord and watch him go behind bars in prison and know that he would never, never have an opportunity to hurt another little kid. Bob Goff said one of the most challenging times in his life was when he was then called to go visit that same warlord in that prison. Because he said in that prison, that warlord met somebody else. 
he met Jesus. And the warlord, looking at Bob Goff across the table, says, what do I do with this Jesus guy? What do I do in my life, and, and how do I live that out now that I've, I've seen Jesus and I've met Jesus? And Bob Goff says, how in the world do I think about baptizing this guy that has done so much evil in this world? He says, I don't know. I don't know how you figure all that stuff out. I think I'll leave it to God. So Bob Goff says, here in the midst of this, of this place where justice and mercy collide, here's this guy who's been a leader and has ravaged all kinds of villages. And yet God meets him in a way and he begins to do a whole new thing inside of a prison. How does that work? I don't know. It's in the mystery of God's justice and his grace and his mercy. So Nahum talks about that. How God is a refuge to all who seek him. And then Nahum comes down in the last part of the first chapter. He says, how do we seek this refuge? How do we follow after God? How do we find God present in the midst of where we're at? Nahum tells his reader there's a couple different things. One of the things he tells us to do is to be about the business of worship. He says, if you want to find God as a refuge, be about the business of worship. Worship seems to be a pretty simple thing, right? Do we ever think that it's a place where we find refuge? As you think about the stories that, that scatter all of the scriptures, one of the things that we find is that Worship is a place where God reveals himself in new and incredible ways to us. Worship is a place where we find God speaking newness into the midst of our lives. Worship is a place where we see God as holy. And we see ourselves as, as needing the life that God brings to us. And then God says there's something else beyond just worship. He said, keep the vows that you make when you're in that place. Keep the vows that you make when you're a part of a worshiping community. The prophet Daniel helps us see and imagine what kinds of vows the people may have been making when they were in worship. When they thought, what is it to love God and follow God and to, to live after God in a foreign place, in a foreign land? That's one picture. Another picture that we see lived out here is when, when people take vows of membership. You know, when we stand up and we say we want to join and be a part of what's happening at Schweitzer, we, we take the vows to, to be a part of, oh, Pastor Jim, you're going to help me, have to help me out here. We're, yeah, worship. Pray, yeah, prayers, presence, gifts, service, and witness. There you go. Thank you. Prayers, presence, gifts, service, and witness. Those are vows that have been taken, that we take. That we've said we're going to be a part of living out in our day-to-day -day life. Nahum comes along, and he's got a tough message, a challenging message. Because the spirit of Nineveh is a spirit that continues on throughout the world. And yet in the midst of his message, 
he looks at all of us who will listen and he says, hear this. God is a strong refuge to those who seek him. And if you want to know the presence of God, if you want to know the power of God, if you want to see what God is up to, let me encourage you to be a part of a couple of things. Be a part of worship. And then whatever vows you take in that place of worship, live them out. Live them out in the places where you live. I read recently that there are all kinds of people who will sign up to do great, big, and glorious things. But the things that really need to be done are small. And almost no one is ready to sign up for those things. But it's in the small things, it's in the small things that God moves the world forward to look like the kingdom of heaven. And so friends, as the Lord speaks to us in this place of worship, what are the things he asks of us? What are the vows that he asks you to take? How, you, how will you live them out in this week ahead? Come, Lord, speak to us. Amen.